Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. In 2010, Deborah Granick made a movie called Winter's Bone. It was sort of a modern film noir, except instead of being set in L.A. or New York, it was set in the Ozarks in Missouri. And instead of a gumshoe in a fedora, it followed a 17-year-old girl as she pieced together the story behind her father's disappearance. Reed Dolly, that's the girl, walked through burned-out meth labs, negotiated with crime families, bail bondsmen and cops. It was a small movie, a lot of dialogue, a lot of beautiful exterior shots, a modest budget. And I mean, you probably already know this, but Ree Dolly was played by an actress named Jennifer Lawrence. It was her first ever starring role. Lawrence's performance was great, but it's not the only reason Winter's Bone was nominated for Best Picture that year. Deborah Granick got the tone perfectly. It's quiet where it needs to be. The dialogue is sparse and plain spoken, but the drama keeps you watching, rapt. The characters, some of the poorest, most underserved people in the country, are complex, relatable people. It talks as much about family and love as it does the dark underbelly of the Ozarks. The law came bad today. Dad signed over everything to his bond. Victoria, I really got to run Dad down to get him to show. You ought not do that. Don't go running after Jessica. Show or don't show, that choice is up to one that's going to jail, not you. You know where he's at, don't you? Where a man's at ain't necessarily for you to know neither. But you do. I ain't seen him. Could be running around with little Arthur and them, you think? Don't you ever go down around little Arthur's asking them people that they ain't offered to talk about. That's a real good way to end up bit by hogs. I wishing you was. When I talked with Deborah last year, she'd just finished the long-awaited follow-up to Winter's Bone. It's called Leave No Trace. Like Winter's Bone, it puts a compelling but compassionate focus on marginalized groups. One of the principal threads is a combat veteran's struggle with trauma and homelessness. It tells the story of a father and daughter who live entirely off the grid in a nature reserve not far from Portland, Oregon. Then... The dad gets arrested, and social workers get involved, offering housing, work, school. But as you might imagine, it's a tough transition for both of them. Look, I'm just going to say this. Leave No Trace is a beautiful work of art. The L.A. Film Critics Association called it the best film of the year. Deborah is nominated for Best Director at the Independent Spirit Awards. There is lots of great stuff in this conversation you're about to hear. But if you come away with one piece of information, I want it to be this. Go see... Leave no trace. Anyway, here's a little bit of the film. The opening scenes detail regular life for Will and his daughter, Tom. They forage and cook mushrooms. Will teaches Tom to play chess. They build fires for warmth. And in this scene, they're inside a tent, and it's raining outside as they get ready to go to sleep. What's your favorite color? What's yours? Yellow. What was my mother's favorite color? Yellow. Maybe she taught me that. I wish I could remember. Well, she would have wished for that too. 
some sleep. Good night, yellow. Deborah Granick, welcome to Bullseye. I'm glad to have you on the show. Thank you. I heard that you were a wedding videographer for a long time. Is that true? <laughs> I did do that. I, that's how I made my sort of daily wage or weekly wage in Boston. I was living there at the time. And yes, I did do that. What are the secrets to high-quality wedding videography besides knowing how to operate the equipment? Well, I used to like, you know, it was... There's a lot of anthropology in weddings, and um, weddings, different ethnic groups, different classes, social class, where they're held, um, the poignancy of weddings. You know, so I, my wedding videos were not very conventional in that way, because you know I was very interested in like the, you know, ECU and the comedy of like not being able to put something on the lapel. You know, um, I loved photographing you know, the elders, the people, people's grandparents and stuff. And so I had to be very careful that I at least got the vows in there as well, you know. And yeah. You've made uh, films about people who do not share your background. Was that always your intent? Yeah, I think it's for some filmmakers or for some people, it's very hard to reflect on the things that are close you know it's the distance it's the unfamiliar that allows for like almost i want to say more replete note-taking or more noticing things more um as much as i've wondered what it would be like to try to turn the camera on my own family or on places and and kind of lifestyle things that i know well I've, i've just always found it hard and whereas when i don't know what this what how things are done and the practices that i'm seeing and the why of everything it's it's just an, it's in stronger relief and it feels like there's something there to film whereas i'm inured to my own you know my own whatever practices you know i want to ask you a, a question about this anthropological perspective you know you can go up into the mountains and talk to folks who live there to get a sense of what it's like to uh, it, to get a sense of what it's like to, you know, live next to a meth lab or have, um, you know, a culture where there's always a guitar or a banjo at hand. Like there's there's a lot of things that you can directly perceive to make Winter's Bone, your, your movie that came out eight years ago. Yeah. Leave No Trace is a movie that is based on a novel that's based on a true story about which we don't know very much. It's about a father and daughter who lived by themselves in a park in Portland, Oregon. Yes. And and you can't go and ask them what that's like. So how do you get a sense of what those feelings are when it isn't a place that you can go to and ask people? Right. Well, so then that's that's when fiction and anthropology become collaborators, right? Or they, they you know, so um, then if you create the given circumstance, let's say you know a blueprint, like you say, that you know the park that they lived in and you know that they, they obtained um, most of their food from a very ordinary grocery store using a very modest budget of, of um, very small VA benefits disability benefits that were at a very low percentage. And so you've got these facts. You don't know what they purchased. And, and you know, and then 
but that's what the marriage of fiction. Uh, you know, we were in that grocery store. I knew I it, it made sense that they ate eggs. It turned out that uh, that was something we could cook on, you know, in our set. That once the fire was built, it was easy to boil eggs. It's really uh, a lot of bang for your buck nutritionally, you know. Um, I, you know, but then um, we're also in the grocery store, and the and Thomason, who's playing the character Tom, she in one of the takes picked up. Uh, a bag of mandarins, you know, just a mesh bag of mandarins and just and asked her father right there and then, can we get these? And he was going to either nod yes or no. He was either going to be saying that they could afford or they couldn't. Um, the anthropology in this instance could only go so far. If the article had said that they had a mono diet of only medium grain brown rice and beans, I would have been intrigued by that and I probably would have shown that. Then Thomason may have said, you know, we always have rice and beans in a rehearsal. Can we get tangerines, you know? And I would have been very interested. I would have been very interested in what this teen actress is bringing from her own impulse as well. And in a rehearsal setting, I may have taken note of that and then wanted to add that to the script. Because it, the anthropology now becomes about this teen. And she's got a, a craving and she's and and it's okay to ask you know um can we get it <laughs> so my drift here is um some details are going to be laid out in the text or in the original document and they're going to get married to what that grocery store really has and then subsequent to that what the teen actor um might spontaneously want to mix into the rehearsal and so it goes in the real life story, the girl who was living in a big urban park in Portland with her dad was 13 years old, I remember, right? Yeah. Um, the actress who plays her in your film is, I guess, probably a couple years older, yes. but certainly could, you know, certainly could pass for 13 in movie world. Um, was that age and part of life of particular interest to you? You know, I think it was important that she was young enough that the f the forest was still her classroom and that her imaginary world was still um, functioning and that she could conjure things and be engrossed in, you know, the world around her in a way that was very focused. I think she's learning at a pretty rapid rate, I would say, that something disturbs and I would say, unbalances her father, you know. Um, and yet she can't be so all-knowing that she's got it wrapped up and, ha and, and has all the vocabulary for that. So I think the, the fact that she's on the younger side allows for this believable process of observation, of piecing things together, of forging your, your connections. And I did like that about her. It allows me to sh use that a lot as a, as a visual technique. What is Tom seeing? And what is she inferring from it? Um, what questions does she have? By those questions, we will learn what is it she needs to know. And we'll also learn a little bit more about her father and, 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 and what she desires. Your film, Leave No Trace, is based on a novel by Peter Rock called My Abandonment. Yes. Is the novel's protagonist also the daughter, as it is in your film? I mean, I, I think that there are two central characters in your movie, but we very much see through the daughter's eyes. Was was that the case in the book? 
It is the case in the book. Um, in the book, the father has more psychiatric issues going on than we, you know, than than we depict. Meaning, I really wanted Will to also be a reliable uh, character. Meaning that um, that the that his perception and brain functioning is not so different from ours that there's no point of recognition or congruency. And in the book, he, he suffers from more things, you know, that he that his hypervigilance has led him, has, has you know, moved more along the spectrum of, of extreme paranoia. And, and it becomes, he becomes less relatable. But in the novel, the daughter, absolutely, she is the narrator. She is the one that is observing her father. She is the one that is stepping in and uh, translating uh, in some ways for her father, more so than in the film. In the film, um, it is more of a dialogue between them, whereas in the book, given that it's first person, it's it's she's the protagonist because she's the only person you can really feel that you understand. Why did you choose to have Will, the father have a more recognizable psychiatric state, um, something that felt more like, uh, more relatable to folks who don't have any mental illness? Uh, I would say that why I did that was because I wanted people not to dismiss him. I didn't want, it is so convenient to say, we have all this pejorative language, right? Nut job, weirdo, you know, clinically this, clinically that. You know, I, I like the idea that in the DSM, he was hard to pinpoint because part of his stuff is utterly volitional. You know, what would you say about Henry David Thoreau? Would you say he's got defiance disorder? He's uh, he's grandiose, grandiosity because he wants to philosophically contemplate what it means to live with less? You know, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, I didn't want him to be dismissed. And for us not to care, I wanted to make some of the things that he was striving for and questioning worthy of our attention and for us to care that he would get some of what he needs. So if he's unrelatable or dismissible, that's never going to happen. We'll finish up my interview with Deborah Granick when we return from a quick break. Still on the docket... She's working on a film based on the book Nickeled and Dimed, which, if you haven't read it, is a thoroughly investigated, brilliant work of nonfiction. She'll tell me how she plans to turn that into a narrative film. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI. REI believes that a life outdoors is a life well lived, and they have for 80 years. So check out their podcast, Wild Ideas Worth Living, for inspiring stories of people and of taking the road less traveled. Hear from explorers, athletes, authors, and experts in the field. Follow how they're taking wild ideas and making them a reality every day. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Oscar season, and we don't want you to show up on the red carpet unprepared. That's why Pop Culture Happy Hour is here to help you sort through the nominees and separate the best from the rest. Check us out on Friday, and let us try to help you dominate your Oscar pool. Unless you binge-watch TV at least 80 hours a week, Inside Pop is definitely not for you. Sean, that's a little extreme, and also not quite true. Okay, Amita, how about Inside Pop is the podcast for people who love and appreciate the best pop culture has to offer? 
Oh, much better. In every episode, we interview the people who create the culture you crave. Past interviews include the showrunner of Ava DuVernay's Queen Sugar and Mudbound director Dee Reese. You'll also get the very best pop culture recommendations in our Big Sell segment. Plus the opinions of two TV producers who are pop culture obsessives and actually do binge 80 hours of TV a week. Eyeballs. So tired. Listen to Inside Pop every other Wednesday on the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Deborah Granick wrote and directed the acclaimed 2010 film Winter's Bone. When we talked last year, she just released her long-awaited follow-up to that film. It's called Leave No Trace. You can stream it now on Amazon. Ben Foster, who's one of the stars of the film, gave a quote, and I'm paraphrasing in an interview that he did about the movie. He said, he said that um, being on set with you was very intense because he had never worked with anyone who cared so much about every choice that they were making as director. And I believe he said that, and I don't think he was joking when he said it. I'm uh, laughing because it's intense. But I think he said like uh, that each choice felt like someone's life was on the line. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do you feel that way when you're on set? Well, the choices have to be performed very quickly, right? So... um, when you don't have, when you don't feel like you've had time to contemplate something fully, you know, you you feel like there's almost more risk associated with the idea that you've, you're you're not thinking it through completely, but you have to decide right now, and you could feel regret, but you nonetheless you've got to decide right now, and so I think possibly in the mix of what he's just of what he said is that notion that um, you have to almost take a deep breath, close your eyes and say like, okay, I'm taking this gamble, you know. And of course, thank goodness, no one's life is really on the line. Um, But the fact is, I think deciding all day long in a rapid succession of decisions can start to feel like the starkness. Am I am I am I on the right track? Have I made the right decisions? And I think maybe what he's reading in me is that uncertainty that feels like, ah, Yikes, I could be wasting a whole lot of people's times if I'm making a whole set of decisions that don't pan out and don't yield something. I've just squandered a huge amount of people's time and energy, and they're putting a lot into this. I've got to do right by them, you know? So I think frequently a director feels extremely responsible for coming through with something, given that so many people are contributing to the to the process and the effort. I feel like a lot of people have an idea of what a director does that is or or maybe how a director is that might be fundamentally misogynist. And I Mm. would probably include myself in that. Mm. Like when I think of a director, not only do I probably think of a man, but I also think of somebody who has a way of being in the world that culturally I would associate with men, which is to say like bossing people around, especially. Mm. Well, Um, yeah. (laughs) And you're talking about the same process in a very different way. And I imagine you must be aware of the way that that has affected the way people see you as a director and and the way that that has affected your career um is that true like do you feel like uh 
there is a world of people who want you to be somebody who makes pronouncements? Um, for centuries, I think we've wondered whether there was a correlation between certain kinds of mania or certain kinds of uh, erratic behavior or centricities and the notion of, of genius, which is a very complicated term in itself. Um, and at times we know that's really been true, right? I mean, I think someone who stands out like the, is the embodiment of that is like Isaac Newton, you know, or, uh, the, the many people that never slept or, or, you know, someone like Gramsci, you know, people for whom even just sort of bodily comforts and, and, and you know, basic needs of the body sort of were ignored and and, and the hours at which they toiled and, and the way in which their thoughts would never cease for them and, and that the that, that things would come at them so fast and furious. You know, that's a very specific notion. But then we grew this other kind of notion that to be um, non-negotiable, to scream over people, to be so rarefied, you know, I think people started performing this idea of the exotic genius. It became performative. Or it was, there was OCD involved and it was unchecked and, and, it was, and there was permission given. Oh, he's a genius. He can roll over people or... He's he's a genius. He can scream and shout. He's a genius. He can pound the table and break the glass. Um, he's a genius. He can sort of order everyone in the film to cry. He can order their clothes off, you know. He can compromise them. He can humiliate them, you know. And I think that we are really calling times up on that behavior. And, you know, I'm not going to ever say that – I would never say that no woman can – perpetrate that of course they can you know this is this is a behavior not a gender you know this is a behavior and um i just think that there was so much pressure on on men to be so stellar that then they had to perform this jacked up genius routine you know which basically was bad behavior so i think it is complicated i think women are capable of it and you know so please I, I, I hope I'm getting this across. Please, Deborah, you know, get this across, which is, uh, you know, it's not pitting men against women in this case. It's that we, we formatted and, and promulgated an ideal of that, that genius meant tempestuous. And I, I am a tempestuous person, so let me not say that, 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 that you didn't have to take responsibility for your tempestuous. I am tempestuous, and I take huge responsibility. I can't always correct it. I can't always modify it. But afterwards, I sure as experience regret, you know, if I've done wrong by people, you know. Deborah, are you still developing a feature film based on Nickel and Dimed, the best-selling first-person journalism slash sociology book by uh, Barbara Ehrenreich? Yes. Yes, we are. We are working on a script of, um, that is... So it's, we're doing a fictional adaptation of that of that sociological book, and um, the next phase will be to take the script to hopefully uh, New Jersey. Hopefully, New Jersey will be the post-industrial and very rich home for this tale to be told. And um, her book has never lost its relevance, you know. And in fact, what she was calling the minimum wage now, as you know, is often referred to as the poverty wage. 
So it's, I think, in some ways, what she laid the groundwork for uh, has become an utterly incisive and and continuously evolving analysis. Uh, and to me, it's always it's so it's so indicative that every few years she has to change the foreword, you know, the preface. She has to update it because the book is still in play big time. And uh, she she notes the crimes against poor people just keep proliferating. Like what? No one no one thought it would continue. Why would once you breach this fundamental agreement? And then start to find other ways to to further nickel and dime working people. You know, it's, it's quite sinister, honestly. What made you think that you could make a narrative film out of it? I mean, I remember reading you talking about reading the book that became Leave No Trace and seeing immediately the, um, you know, the way that the, the the way that the trees look on camera, you know. Yeah. Um, yes. And you're, are you asking, like, what what is yeah. visual in, in her book? <laughs> I just, it seems so gutsy to me <laughs> to make a feature film out of this book. It was a book I, I read when it was new, and I really enjoyed it um, and felt like I learned and got a lot out of it. But um, I also, at the time, wouldn't have been, like, uh, you know, chomping a cigar and being like, green light in the room. Let's make a film out of this. Yeah, and believe me, there, there's not too much of that. <laughs> that green light is extremely... <laughs> um, uh, it's hard one, and, and that would be really uh, about um, a very, very, I want to say, uh, so indispensably important kind of financier right now that, you know, uh, there's only one out of out of many hundreds of thousands who can say, I can work with a slow return, and and my objective is much more impact than profit, and that would that's the kind of financier that would be needed um, for for the telling of a tale that, like you, like you said, that that um, is very, very much the day to day of how to get by in a service economy that is itself very destabilized and in many places sort of rolling up, you know, like that. I don't, I don't. Again, changes happen in a way that in this in this era, uh, it's the speed. We just don't have time to turn around. What does it mean for brick and mortar to disappear, you know, to somewhat to become scarce? You know, I think we weren't. That wasn't anyone's playbook, you know, and um, so I think Barbara's book will be such. It will be very rich to marry it to what you know what's happening now, and um, I think what will what what's won my heart is that. I want the families in that story to get what they need. I want them to be able to find. Uh, a way to them for them to be adept and and non destroyed guardians for their children. You know, I want them, I want them to find lyrical moments. I want them to find um, things that enrich their lives. I want them to have good moments, even if if there's not a budget in their in their extremely frugal existence, they'll make it somehow. You know, so I want to see the anthropology of, of of scrappy survival. And and her book loves on those people you know it, it, it's it's it, it's it, it was always it was a it was a way in which she cataloged the nobility of what it takes to actually be able to function in the contemporary wage labor world well deborah i'm so grateful that you took all this time to come be on bullseye thank you very much for talking to me oh, well thank you for your 
soulful questions and you know, willingness to contemplate so many diverse things. Deborah Granick, one of the smartest people I've ever heard talk about film, and I mean that for real, and I've talked to a lot of people about film. Leave No Trace is absolutely stunning. You can buy it or stream it online now. Go see it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where just yesterday there was a crane so huge that it stretched far beyond our ninth floor window. We think it was lifting elevator parts into our building? I mean, it was truly gargantuan. I cannot overstate how huge this crane was or how weird it was to see it power up in front of our, you know, in front of our big picture windows. <laughs> the show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Shana Deloria. Our interstitial music, the music you are hearing right now and in between segments and so forth, comes from DJW, a.k.a. the great Dan Wally, the world's handsomest record collector. Thanks for sharing it with us, Dan. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries provided it to us. Our thanks go to both of them. And before you go... I have been making this show for over 15 years, coming up on 20 years since I was in college. And I have interviewed so many hundreds of people, uh, and almost every single episode that we have ever recorded is archived on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find our recent interviews on YouTube, where they are easy to play and share. Everybody knows how to watch a video on YouTube, right? Uh, You can also find them on Facebook. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Bullseye. Uh, or just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You will find all of those things and uh, plenty of stuff to listen to. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 